When the idea was first pitched to me two years ago to do a series around the theme of subsidence and what that might look like, and then it could potentially be connected to evictions, I didn't think it was going to cause me to question the very land upon which I live. Some are born in the Delta, and some are called to it, the shifting landscape. And as the earth shifts beneath us, so too must we. As we bring the series to a close, and we think about the issues we face, finding solutions can feel insurmountable. So I talked to three people who are focusing instead on strategies, actions they are taking. Austin Feldbaum, the Hazard Mitigation Coordinator for the City of New Orleans. Kate Scott, a housing justice advocate and a landlord. And Aaron Chang, an urban planner and activist. As you listen, think less about people who are presenting you with the answers. I invite you instead to think about what your place in this is, what you have to offer. I'm Marie Lovejoy. This is the final in our series on subsidence and evictions in New Orleans. Sync, Episode 5, Radical Shift. My name is Austin Feldbaum. I am the Hazard Mitigation Program Administrator for the City of New Orleans. So I work in the Emergency Management Department and the Hazard Mitigation Office maintains the city's comprehensive strategy for risk reduction. So we work to develop plans and projects that protect people and infrastructure and the environment. My office just completed updating our hazard mitigation plan, and that really kind of resets our strategy and has a list of about 120 distinct things that the city and our partners intend to do over the next five to 10 years to start reducing our risk to both natural and man-made hazards. So... What would you say that one or two of the biggest problems is that the city of New Orleans faces in terms of hazards? The climate and natural environment are tough here. Obviously, flooding is the most famous, maybe the most frequent and most destructive threat that the city of New Orleans faces. But then I think heat and all of the stressors and strains that it puts on us in terms of just making life harder and more expensive, and then also being potentially life-threatening, is starting to come to the forefront of everybody's thinking right now. People died in the heat during Hurricane Ida, and we're all thinking a lot these days about how we can prevent things like that from happening. It goes to having the power not go out for 10 days at a time in the middle of the summer, And then also just things like, what if our homes were more energy efficient and our bills were lower and less of a strain for households to keep up with? And one of the interesting sort of debates in the nation is around whether it's more effective long-term to continue to elevate homes in flood-prone areas versus, you know, restoring the environment, getting out of the way of floods entirely. Do you think that that's one of the more effective strategies? For New Orleans, 
I think elevating homes has historically since Katrina been the adaptation tool of choice. We are very much a place-based culture and there's a lot of desire in the community to remain in place. If you live in New Orleans and if you've been here for the last five years or so, you've lived through a lot of small floods where like the streets filled up and cars got ruined and life had to stop for a half of a day. And those little floods don't really get into a lot of homes, but I don't need to tell you how destructive they are. The work to reduce the negative impacts of flooding has to take place in a number of different areas, improving the drainage, keeping up with the levee maintenance. Can't forget about coastal restoration and the wetlands outside of the levee system that help buffer the effects of storms. The city's strategy is kind of a yes and approach to reducing flooding because, you know, I don't know of too many other places in the world that are subject to flooding from one of the world's major rivers, from coastal storms, from heavy rainfall. It feels like water can come from all directions here. Yeah, I took the risk reduction survey on the website. And one of the questions was, what are you most worried about? And here's the list. Hurricanes, levee failure, coastal erosion, water system failure, sea level rise, economic downturn, housing affordability. And it's like, yes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Then the next question is, what do you think we should be prioritizing? And so, you know, it really just sort of drove home to me, like, you know, where do we put our resources? Where do we put our energy? Because all of these things are important. We can't ignore any of these. And yet it often feels like we're stretched so thin. It's like this game of whack-a-bole. It can feel that way. I have to remind myself that, you know, (laughs) technically my job is to administer a government program and not to fix all the problems of the world. But it sure is tempting to try sometimes. And, you know, the nature of the work is that it really does touch on everything because, you know, when we were writing the risk assessment part of the new hazard mitigation plan, part of it is to consider like, well, what makes people vulnerable to actually feel the effects of disasters? It's things like housing insecurity. It's things like limited English proficiency. It's poverty. It's all the things that make people socially vulnerable in other ways. And so anything that helps address any one of those factors helps reduce our risk to disaster. The mitigation grant programs, they've been really successful at helping a lot of people, but there are specific shortcomings with the policy, which end up leaving people out. The first is that you can't apply for a grant if you don't currently have flood insurance. If you're in a high-risk zone and your house is not built to modern codes and you went to buy flood insurance today, you would have to pay the full actuarial value. And I'm not an economist, and that kind of sounds like made-up words, but you'd probably be looking at a $12,000 bill if you live in a low-lying area. If you don't have that kind of cash, then you can't even get a grant to lift your house. So then what do you do? Also, FEMA, when they're making the awards, they prioritize what they call severe repetitive loss priorities. You become severe repetitive loss by having a history of flood claims against your flood insurance. But historically, there was a pattern to who had and didn't have flood insurance, right? 
So if you didn't have a mortgage, you weren't required to have flood insurance, so you didn't carry it. And there was just really obvious patterns who didn't have flood insurance. Tended to be older folks, tended to be people whose houses have been passed down through the family, tended to be lower income people in higher risk areas. And if you didn't have flood insurance, you didn't make an insurance claim. And no matter how many times you flooded, that just didn't get recorded by FEMA. So in essence, historically, because we know that the more affluent the community, the higher the coverage of flood insurance, we're crediting a history of being affluent and being able to afford flood insurance as the primary qualifier for being able to receive help now. And if their home historically didn't carry flood insurance, then their history of flooding is invisible to FEMA and they're at the bottom of the pile of grant applications. So that perpetuates this pattern. You know, there are just little fixes to the policy that could, if not fix these problems, then stop perpetuating them. They ultimately just need to bring more money into the fund. And they intend to do that by raising the cost of flood insurance. If you're elderly and in any city on the Gulf Coast or East Coast and you're on a fixed income, hopefully you had a plan for how you were going to meet your expenses. And now one of your expenses is going to triple in cost or more. I think it's really clear that building smart, building homes that are elevated and having water in mind when we're building, whether that's houses or warehouses or streets, is proven to work. It's getting to be common sense. And at City Hall, we're trying to institutionalize that. So unless there's some restriction with whatever money we're spending on a project that won't let us incorporate green infrastructure into a road project, then we ought to be doing that. You know, we have to take a hard and honest look at whether an individual building is worth saving or retrofitting. Some buildings that are not historic, that are getting on in age, maybe we can just replace them. It's a lot of times cheaper and easier than trying to lift it up in the air as is. We've never as a city been willing to have a conversation about like letting certain little corners that flood all the time. Like what could we do to make this a green space? On some level, if the levee breaks, this city could not really be viable anymore. Or more likely, the cost of insurance and the cost of repairing every so often, the general disruption and all those chronic stressors add up, and there's just a slow process of attrition. The wobbly roads and leaky pipes because of the land that we built on, it's not solid or immovable. Can we smooth that process out and have a decent quality of life for everybody who chooses to be here? And geologically speaking, we're fighting a losing battle choosing to live here. The wetlands and all the stuff that surrounded New Orleans isn't coming back within anybody's grandchildren's lifetime, right? That took thousands of years to build. That's not really the conversation that we should be having. The question is, can we get old with dignity here? Can those of us who have kids raise their kids and grandkids here? Can we continue to build our lives here? And that's ultimately what's at stake. Do you have kids? I don't.
my brother's here and he has kids and he talks about leaving all the time. What do you think drives that for him? Sometimes he'll tell me that he has kind of a sense of guilt about it. What am I doing putting my girls through, you know, what they're going to grow up in this gritty city with its (laughs) complicated schools and et cetera, et cetera. And why don't we move to the mountains and someplace with clean water and nice air? What's that song? You got to be crazy to live here. Something like that. (laughs) And yet there is a spirit here. There's a way of expressing oneself creatively and artistically that is really very difficult to find in a lot of other places. I don't know what I'll do in the future, but I've left New Orleans and Louisiana a couple of times in my adult life. And every time I missed it terribly until I came back. And sometimes when one of us is having a hard day or struggling with the struggles of this place, my partner and I will remind each other, hey, you know, at least we don't live in Muncie or, sorry to Muncie, but, you know, we'll pick a name of a random place somewhere in America that's not New Orleans, that we don't really know, just acknowledging that this is a special place, right? If you know, you know. Why do you stay? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I grew up around here, and there's things that are particular to New Orleans that are really freeing and magical and great. And I don't know where to find that anywhere else. And then you know, I, I love the wetlands. I love being on the water. I love this ecosystem. And the times that I manage to get out on a boat and get close to it are all great. And I want to keep having them. The last time I left, I, I mean, I barely had gotten where I was going. And I felt this visceral urge to come back. So here I am. What do you wish people knew about this work that you don't think that they know? I wish that people knew where to get help and what programs exist. One thing that people can do is get in touch with our office. If your flood insurance is getting unaffordable, or if you are trying to figure out what your options are, you might be able to get help through a grant to raise your home. Our phone rings all the time, and that's a good problem to have. I think we all collectively have to be willing to change the way we do things. A great example of that is when it rains really hard and the street fills up, there's always going to be somebody who decides to drive their car through the floor and they're going to get stuck and their car is going to be ruined. It's going to happen every time. What is it going to take for us as a community and as just a culture shift to accept that sometimes you got to stop what you're doing? It's raining so hard that you just got to stay put for a half hour. It's a beautiful thing, actually. I love when the rain catches me somewhere and I'm like, oh, can't, you know, got to watch it rain for 20 minutes. Think of all the little ways that living with water, quote unquote, is going to make us change. New Orleans is like other communities in the country in that There are historically patterns to who got to build their house in a place that was safe and who 
by necessity had to live in an area that was more at risk. And in New Orleans, we saw that on the sliver by the river. And then everybody who came along later was pushed further and further towards the back of town, so the low-lying areas. And to some degree, that pattern of flood risk in the color of flood risk, low-income minority communities tend to be the most at risk. That puts people who have the least ability to pay for insurance or to mitigate their risk through elevating their house stuck in a high-risk area. And I think as a country, I wish we could just focus and decide to fix that problem. What does that look like? Just remove the barriers. Make it... One problem is that people have to be able to have flood insurance. It's a pay-to-play thing, right? If you're too poor, then you're priced out of participating in the grant program, which is obviously counter to the intention of what we're trying to do. And there are things about the way that FEMA sets prices for, say, you live in a very flood-prone spot. We want to compensate you for your property and help you relocate somewhere else. But they're going to offer you an amount of money generally that isn't enough to move somewhere else and purchase a new house. And then we have to consider the particularities of each community. And sometimes folks want to stay close to their neighbors or their family. Just case by case, there needs to be consideration for things like that to make it acceptable and to really give it legs and get it done. You know, it's not rocket science. Just have to do it. That was Austin Feldbaum. He reminded me of this thing that Hannah Adams had said way back in the first episode of this series, that our laws reflect our values, and we can change them to better reflect the values that we have today. We are not locked into these systems. This came up with my next guest, Kate Scott. Kate is herself a landlord, but grew up as a renter and has a different way of thinking about how she might go about the business of being a landlord and also societally how we even define the term eviction. Here's Kate. Eviction can be something other than a court-sanctioned process that is formal in nature. One thing that came up for me was around the issue of safety and housing. I feel like every year in New Orleans in the wintertime, there's a family that dies in a house fire because landlords are not even held to a standard wherein they have to maintain safe and working smoke detectors. You know, another one is around the issue of mold in New Orleans. And so literally your home, which is supposed to be a safe place, is making you sick, physically ill. I think that's another really powerful example. And then the other bucket of examples that I can think of is around the issue of sexual harassment and housing. When it comes to sexual harassment and housing and how unsafe it is for people, how unsafe it is for tenants, and usually how little options people feel like they have when they're facing that in a place that is supposed to be safe for them. How long have you been a landlord? 
Actually, I bought my house in New Orleans when I was pregnant with my son, and my mom was moving from out of state to live closer by. And so I bought a double, and she lived on one side, and we lived on the other side. And so I guess, technically, <laughs> I became a landlord to her. But in the more traditional sense of the word, it was 2015 when I moved out of the city and wasn't ready or in a position to sell my house. And I became a landlord. How has that experience been for you? It's been very stressful. I grew up as a renter. This is the first time I ever owned a house. And I feel like I have this really almost sacred responsibility as a landlord, kind of related to that issue of safety. You know, it's not something that I had any formal training and knowing how to do. I certainly had plenty of examples of how to be a bad landlord and so knew what not to do. But in terms of figuring out what I should do and understanding the clear boundaries around what my responsibilities as a landlord are, I've been, I feel like mostly on my own trying to figure that out. I'm obviously aware of the fact that that has really important implications for people's everyday lives and safety. Growing up as a renter, what were some of the examples of bad landlordship that you experienced? Well, as a child watching the impact of being a renter on my mom and her not being able to have control over the basic conditions in which we lived. So you know, as a tenant, you can ask your landlord to fix something, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do it. So I think I had a really clear sense when I became a landlord of wanting to be more responsive than what I had experienced, both as a child watching my mom in the position of a renter, and then as a young person in the position of a renter myself. When you became a landlord, what were some of the things that you figured out along the way? <laughs> well, in the position of a landlord, but also as a housing advocate, there is basically a lease template that many landlords in New Orleans use. And I wasn't really interested in using that template because it is so biased in favor of landlords. For example, in many leases in New Orleans, there is a prohibition on recording your lease, which is the only thing that gives it the power that it needs if you're a tenant and need to enforce the provisions of your lease. So I wasn't interested in having that sort of clause in any lease that I was going to use. Another issue was around tenant screening. So it's a widespread practice in the industry to screen tenants to look at their criminal records, for example, many times even including their arrest records. That has really profound implications for social justice in terms of the impact that the criminal legal system has on people of color. And in the housing context, when we think about typical heads of households for renter families, thinking about women of color in particular, so that wasn't something that I was interested in doing either. But I do, as a landlord, have an interest in figuring out whether my tenants are going to be able to be successful in living in the property. And so you have to come up with other ways of figuring out how to do some of that. Like what? So I ended up relying mostly on 
having conversations with people, and then also checking references. I don't think that I required the references to be prior landlords, because I'm aware there's a lot of reasons that a relationship between a landlord and tenant could sour that have nothing to do with what a tenant has or hasn't done. So being creative about how it is that I would verify with folks whether or not they would make a good tenant and allowing that to be something beyond just talking to prior landlords was important. Just like with anyone else, there are good and bad landlords. There are good and bad tenants. And in the context of this particular relationship, landlords have a lot more power than tenants do. I've been particularly fortunate because my tenants have been able to continue paying rent. But when the pandemic first hit, I mean, I did do the research to figure out what are options if they're not going to be able to pay rent. Again, just having that communication with them, like, do you think you're going to be able to pay rent? (laughs) Because it is a delicate relationship and there's a power imbalance. I don't want to pry too much into what's happening for them personally. But then, you know, it's something that if they weren't going to be able to pay rent, I wanted to be able to troubleshoot and figure out how to deal with that. And so figuring out how to ask those questions delicately was something that I was thinking through. I do have savings set aside in order to address whatever comes up in relation to the house, be it tenants unable to pay rent or some sort of major repair. And so thinking through even really basic things like where to transfer, when to transfer money, it would have been part of my sort of game plan. It's like, where are the guides on how to be a landlord? Right. Well, I do think there are guides. They're not intentional guides. It's just our culture that that is an acceptable way to build wealth. It's really reinforced by everything in our culture. There's a socially acceptable way of making this decision that's based in capitalism and extraction and exploitation in the housing market. And I don't believe in those things. I believe that housing is a human right. And I know that people need access to safe housing in order to be functional human beings. And so basically, for me, every decision that I've made as a landlord, there has to have been some point where I had to interrogate myself. So for this decision that I am faced with right now, what do I need to do in order to live out my values and not this extractive sense of housing that is completely false and damaging? but which is reinforced by our culture in so many different ways. I think it's a mistake to assume that policymakers in Louisiana, for example, don't know what the problems are and don't know how these systems work. I testified in front of committees in the Louisiana legislature on multiple occasions where I knew that the committee members were landlords themselves. They have a vested interest in not fixing these problems because they are benefiting from them. What do you need to do to live out those values? I mean, honestly, I don't think that it's feasible. And that's why I'm interested in community land trusts as a form of housing ownership. For someone who's never heard of a land trust before, would you just say what it is, how it works? At its most basic, the community land trusts 
is a way for a community of people to collectively hold land and structures that are on the land. And so that means that there's community-based decision-making and community-based, I hesitate to use the word profit, but profit from the ownership of the land and the structures on it. And usually there's rules in place to make sure that that is not extractive in nature. So if you're a homeowner in a community land trust, there's probably a limit on the equity that you're able to walk away with if you sell your home. Something that's based on a reasonable amount that you would make with the sale of your house. But especially in the context of something like a gentrifying neighborhood, not something that's just going to lead to additional real estate speculation that again makes housing a market-based good instead of a human right. Tell me about the land trust. So I got involved with the Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative back in 2011. I had been reading up about CLTs at that time. I was really interested in JPNSI because they had a really clear vision around making it applicable to renters and not just homeowners. I was familiar with CLTs through my work in housing advocacy and using the homeownership model with the CLT. And I knew that that wasn't going to be, at least immediately, a solution for New Orleans because the majority of people in New Orleans are renters. And I think bottom line, the thing that is so important about the CLT model is that it removes housing from the market and it makes it not just a function of real estate exploitation anymore. It's the only model that I'm familiar with that does that. And so I ended up joining the board of JPNSI. I also lived in the neighborhood at that time and was just really drawn to the vision of community-based ownership of housing. Basically, any housing problem that I was familiar with, there's potential for the CLT model to solve the problem at its root instead of just being a band-aid. How? What's a specific problem that this model can solve? Well, one really big one is the racial wealth gap in the country, which is so much tied into housing because it provides a sustainable way for people to build equity through homeownership and even through renting. The other options for housing interventions are not going to do that. So one of the things that I had noticed doing housing advocacy work, especially post-Katrina, was there were so many people that needed housing assistance. They needed help paying their rent. And the only resource available to people that was funded was homeownership assistance. And if you are a person that's on the verge of homelessness because you can't pay your rent, you are not a good candidate to be a homeowner in the United States. And the CLT model really provides an alternative to that, that maybe one day if you do want to be a homeowner, you can do it by being affiliated with the CLT. But then also there have been really interesting programs that do things like help renters build equity and provide security of tenure so that you do get to the point one day where you can buy a house if that's what you want to do. But doing something like going to a home buyer class is not going to move you from being on the verge of experiencing homelessness to being able to buy a home. So when you say that you think that the current system of renting and housing is not 
tenable or sustainable. Would you say that the main difference between that model and the community land trust model would be the power dynamic? To me, the more important piece is that it's not extractive. It treats housing as a right and not as something that is subject to market forces. And those two things, I guess, are very intertwined with each other because in order to be extractive, you have to have power. (laughs) But it's really a shift in our concept of what housing is and how it's owned and maintained that is just radically different from most of the other ways that we do that in the country right now. And the only way to solve the root problem is to recognize that everybody needs housing. Even if you're a terrible person, you need housing. And so we do have to really radically shift the way that we think about housing in this country. (laughs) More than once throughout the episode, the concept that New Orleans is a very place-based culture has come up. And our connection to the land is intrinsic. It is symbiotic. And so for the final interview of the series, I wanted to talk to Erin Chang, who works on water management issues, urban planning, climate change, and community education. All of this that we've been talking about with changing our minds about the way that we think of the land on which we live, the way that we think about our laws, the way that we think about what it means to be in a community. Aaron is working on all of this. Here's Aaron. My name is Aaron Chang. I am an urban designer and educator, and my focus is on community-driven water management and climate adaptation. This is a water city. The flow of water is what formed the land upon which we live. By beginning with that premise, by starting with water in thinking about how we navigate through this landscape in thinking about landmarks and thinking about history, it gives us this incredibly valuable lens for thinking about the city and the Mississippi River Delta and our place in this Delta context. What are some of the projects that you're working on to that end? One project is called Seeds and Beats, a series of events focusing on water ecology and infrastructure. Central to the entire program has been the planting and the maintenance and the stewardship of a native wildflower meadow located on mosquito control owned property in Gentilly. We have to find ways to interweave the stewardship of land and natural resources with our cultural activities. So we've hosted community conversations, poetry readings, musical concerts, all kinds of activities at this site. And interwoven with those activities has been the act of planting the meadow, of weeding the meadow, of collecting seeds, to build the idea that taking care of the land is something that we should always be doing. I was working on the Greater New Orleans Urban Water Plan as one of the design team leads and also as an outreach coordinator. So I was going out into different neighborhoods across Jefferson, Orleans, and St. Bernard Parishes and talking to hundreds of people about water issues 
presenting some of the stuff that we're working on back at the office and hearing people's responses, I've come to realize that in the world of planning and design, we aren't very good at recognizing the politics of the things that we are working on and that we're presenting. Who gets to work on designing and planning the future of the environment is a manifestation of existing and generally inequitable power structures. And so I'm much clearer now on the politics of what I'm trying to do, which is to say that if we have any hope of affecting the system scale changes that almost everyone sees as being desperately needed in a place where we're dealing with flooding, subsidence, sea level rise, all kinds of pollution, environmental racism, in a place like this, if there's a recognition that system scale changes are necessary, that we need to radically shift how we manage stormwater, how we manage groundwater, then that is fundamentally a cultural and political problem and not a technical problem. The technology, science, engineering, planning, and design, the technology, the specifics of whether we plant rain gardens or build rain barrels or continue building concrete culverts or pump stations, we can always craft better technological solutions but if there isn't a broader community-based push for systems change, it isn't going to happen. As an industry, planners, designers, and engineers are spinning out resilience plans and climate adaptation plans and water management plans and all kinds of stuff all day long and getting paid for that work, but there isn't actually a community basis for the big changes and so whether or not you believe those are the right changes, if we want to affect any kind of change, there has to be a community-driven process for affecting that change. How do we build shared understanding of systems? How do we build shared language so that when you sit down at a table with a policymaker or a community leader, everyone is sharing some understanding of why subsidence happens or why certain areas below sea level or how a pump station works. If we share that knowledge, if we share the knowledge that we're spending tens of millions of dollars every year pumping stormwater, and that pumping stormwater is what causes the city to sink, then we have a different starting point for civic dialogue. I believe deeply that we're not going to make good policy. We're not going to take good actions if we don't share knowledge and if we don't collectively reconnect to soils, to water, and to infrastructural systems that we've been investing in for over a century and that have led us to where we are today. So how do we build collective knowledge? And then that's not all that meaningful if the collective knowledge isn't connected to collective power, if there isn't an actual process for working within communities to articulate possibilities for the future where there's a sense of ownership where there's a belief that I've been a part of creating the solution and I'm going to actually go to bat for it. It means something to me. It's culturally relevant. It reflects who I am and what my community has been and what it seeks to be. Without that, we're just creating, we're just spinning out plans and some stuff gets done, but we're not moving 
nearly quickly enough, nor is there attention being paid to the sociopolitical aspects of what it means to adapt for climate change. It feels very hopeful to me when you say that it's not a technical problem, because if we can engineer our way out of this, then there's hope. Then it's just a matter of education and whatnot. But that's actually, in many ways, a much trickier part of the process, changing the ways that we've, quote unquote, always done things. Over and over again, what you hear is, I've lived here my whole life. I've lived here 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. I didn't realize underneath these oak trees on this street is a massive canal. I didn't know that the more we pump, the more actually causes the city to sink. It calls so much into question. For example, we had the flooding in 2017, and it was so convenient to bash the sewage and water board and to get people fired and to make it a political talking point. And it's not that sewage and water board can't do their work any better. Of course they can. But if we ignore the fact that it's in their mandate to prevent flooding, and that currently means a lot of pumping, actually means that the better sewage and water board does their job, the more we sink as a city, which makes their job harder and the further breaks our infrastructure. And so if we can't reckon with that basic question, then we're missing the work that we need to do as a community. Our Water Leaders Institute co-founder, Tanya James, always talked about these aha moments. If you're walking down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, you see people sitting on what looks like a bench on the neutral ground as you're approaching Claiborne. And it's like an aha moment when you're able to share, hey, the brick that those men are sitting on, that edge is actually an underground drainage culvert and the neighborhood is sinking around the culvert and has done so for decades. So now that the culvert is literally popping out of the ground to the point where somebody can sit on it. Because it's hard for us as humans to keep track of soils sinking or land sinking. And so seeing the world anew and connecting the information that you have with a set of information, certain things start to make more sense. Kids, adults, elders, we often get that kind of reaction of like, holy cow, that's why we're experiencing this. It just reframes our relationship to the city. So that, that culvert was once flush with the ground? Yeah. So drainage in most cities ideally flows by gravity, right? So most cities don't have pump stations because you just direct water downhill and it goes to the nearest river or ocean or lake. And here, because we start out with the topography where the high ground is by the river, if you build drainage, you have your storm drains and your catch basins, and those have pipes that feed into bigger pipes and bigger pipes into the culverts. So as an engineer, you would engineer it. Everything is flowing downhill. So those culverts should be lower, but because they're pile supported, the way a house is or any building in the Delta is supported on wooden piles, they actually stay more stable than the neighborhood which they're supposed to be draining. So over time, all of our drainage culverts are losing capacity because they are year by year, a few millimeters at a time, higher and higher relative to the area that they're draining. So gravity is able to do less and less work. So you go on Napoleon at the Keller Library, for example, there's a massive lip that you have to drive up and over. The asphalt literally breaking. You have two culverts underneath Napoleon 
bringing water from almost all of Uptown down to Pump Station 1 on Broad Street. So the ground is literally breaking. And when you start to understand those dynamics, you start to see, oh, wow, there's a tremendous cost to what we're doing in our fight against flooding. In the efforts to help us all to understand better the land upon which we live, how are the efforts to educate community? Are you seeing that affect the decisions that policymakers are making? When I was working on the urban water plan, I started using the phrase water literacy. To live in the Delta, we have to have some basic environmental literacy. We have to understand the difference between clay, sands, and silts and how they're deposited. We have to understand the systems we put in place. We have to understand that water flows downhill, that it's heavy and that it's uh, forceful and erodes things. And so it's not that we think everyone in the city and in the region needs to be an amateur geologist or hydrologist. It's that because soils, topography, infrastructure, flood protection, all these things touch upon everything, it should affect how we think about economic development. It should affect how we think about mass transit. It should affect how we think about housing and housing affordability. It should affect how we think about environmental justice. It should affect how we think about equity because it's literally the foundations upon which we have built this city and upon which these communities exist we have to have some basic fluency in those concepts. What are some recommendations that you might have for people who are listening and thinking, this is all so much, like, what can I do? It's the hardest thing to say, there's not actually anything you can do. You could build a rain garden. You could spend the money to try to collect every drop of water that falls on your property. And mathematically, quantifiably, that if every single citizen did that and got all their neighbors to do it, it still wouldn't solve our flooding problems. We know that for a fact. And that's presuming the levees hold and that they never break again. We have to think about it politically and culturally because at a much, much deeper level is what is our relationship to the Delta? Do we think that in the Delta, we should have a city where streets are dry, where there aren't open waterways, where every time it rains, we expect the streets to be navigable again, where we expect our yards to be places where you can play? This is the cost of that. This is how it intertwines. These are the policy decisions made over the centuries. These are the technologies we employ to perpetuate a certain mode of living. We have to stop assuming that there's a group of technocrats and water experts that can solve this problem because they can't. There isn't any entity in the city tasked with addressing these deep philosophical questions. And if you don't see yourself as suited for engaging in this conversation, that's you have to be a part of this conversation. I don't care who you are, how old you are, you have to see that my each individual's experiences, their value systems, that's exactly what matters. That we have to, as a community, come together and make some really hard decisions about what any kind of transition looks like. If we said, as a city, we're not going to spend $50 million a year on pumping, we want to spend a bit less and spend more of that on education, then maybe we spend $40 million. But then, as a community, we'd have to say, 
that means we're going to have flooding 20 times a year. And we as a community could say that's a trade-off we're willing to take because it means we're going to sink less and we'll have more money for other public programs. But that's not a technical solution. That's a political and social determination of what we prioritize and what we value. I've always dreamed of how we could have a city where the water has a place to flow, a place to flow that's not through somebody's home. But what does that look like? Does that mean like claiming a street back and turning it into a canal and changing the entire dynamic of that neighborhood? I don't know. Our recent history shows us how incredibly challenging this is. Our mayor made her name fighting for the Broadmoor Lives campaign, Broadmoor as a neighborhood, the right to return. That's an amazing grassroots triumph. And it also is a neighborhood that's in part six feet below sea level. And so what I've learned, hopefully, (laughs) is that somebody like me can't come into a place and say, based on these metrics and this benefit cost analysis, we think this neighborhood should be turned over and become that floodable space. We have to do a better job of supporting communities and making those decisions for themselves. When you were going out and you were meeting a lot of people and it brought to your attention how important it was to have community buy-in, was there a particular person that stands out in your mind? Back in 2018, in our pilot cohort for the Water Leaders Institute, we're in a workshop that's about learning to read maps and researching the histories of neighborhoods and water systems. And Shika Pettisglow is one of our participants. And she's grown up and lived in Gentilly her whole life. And I'll never forget, she was holding an old map of the city from the 19th century. And she said, after all this work that we've done together of visiting places, story circles, people sharing their experiences from Betsy and Katrina and engaging, learning about soils, learning about plants, learning about water, learning about green infrastructure. She points at this map. She points at where Gentilly would be on that map. And she said, I didn't realize until today that Gentilly used to be a swamp. Now I understand so much better why I'm dealing with the water issues that I'm dealing with, which in her case meant flooding in her side yard and her backyard. And she said, I wonder if we should be living here anymore. And that to me is such an important conversation because I can never say that. A planner, a designer can't and shouldn't say that. But I think we generally don't even try to engage community at the level of should we live here? Or what would it mean if we knew that water is eventually going to fill this bowl again? What should we be doing? Should we be crafting a 30-year transition plan where we're moving the most vulnerable populations over 10 years, subsidizing that? How do we do that? Should we be investing in everyone building higher and acclimating ourselves to a future of having water and shifting our cars to boats? Should we be moving much more swiftly so that we can save money and stop trying to hold this bowl dry and shift everyone to high ground within the next five years? I don't know. I've realized that like a planner coming in and saying like, we should do this. There's no conversation there. I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. But if we invest in people and we invest in collective decision-making, then I think we actually have a shot 
at dealing with these hardest questions that are about identity, that are about place and our relationship to place, what we hold sacred, what we think is worth saving. And that's fundamentally a question of power. There's a deep-seated fear of investing in a community making decisions of that magnitude. Why? Why? There, <laughs> I've heard every possible kind of argument. One is the lack of belief that somebody who doesn't have a master's degree or a PhD can wrestle with the data and the science as well as you can. Two, a belief that community engagement is inherently superficial, that you're just going to get people's immediate reactions and that it's going to be vitriolic and unfruitful and there's no way you can please everyone. And then three, the deep-seated bias that is unspoken that planners and designers generally are instruments of existing power structures. And so we can engage a set of solutions that are politically acceptable to those who are in power. The full range of solutions for what we could do in New Orleans extends from everything like, my God, we've seen what Katrina did. We can't have people living below sea level, period. And we need to start shifting and do that in an equitable way. Two, we invest in our $15 billion levy system in perpetuity, regardless of fossil fuel prices and how those change over time. We're going to continue to just maintain systems and harp on sewage and waterboard and make them do their job better, which means we're locked into a future of pumping more and more and spending more and more money on fossil fuels. Those are two extremes. But within the planning context, there's an incredibly narrow range of politically acceptable solutions. So what we end up proposing in the urban water plan and, and most of the work that you see is, all right, we're going to keep the existing system and then we're going to start to integrate and build an industry around green infrastructure. And that then shapes the nonprofit world, the foundations, the community groups, and what people are asked to do. So we have people building rain barrels. We have people building rain gardens. I've worked on some of this stuff. I'm not poo-pooing it. I think it's important. But all of this continues to avoid the deeper, harder questions because people who are in power, it's not in their interest to ask a community, hey, what do you think about the fact that the Mississippi River wants to change course? How do you feel about the fact that there is no way we're going to keep a bowl dry forever? And so we don't do it. And so planners understand that. And so planners, designers, engineers work within what's acceptable and they don't see themselves as engaging in politics. And so they're surprised when there isn't buy-in, but there's never a push to build shared knowledge or build consensus in the first place. What was acceptable was already determined from the get-go. And then you're just fiddling around within that to figure out how funds are allocated towards solutions where the politics are already predetermined. But if we don't see the entire continuum and put citizens in positions to do critical thinking work, to do problem-solving work, to do decision-making, and that's power, decision-making is power, period, then how do we expect people to become stewards of the environments that they inhabit? 
for us to truly be collective stewards of the systems that enable a certain way of life, that doesn't happen unless we invest in critical thinking, problem-solving, decision-making. And so that's the work that planners and engineers and policymakers hoard for themselves. They get to do all that fun stuff, but that's also a hoarding of power. Yeah, I guess that's the part that I'm having trouble connecting. The people who have the power to actually make some different decisions about the way we've always done things, how do we convince those people? You can get a community to be like, oh yeah, we all need to change the way that we're doing things here. But if that's not in the vested interest of people who have power, of people who own land on high ground, it's not going to happen. I don't think we've done a good enough job yet of connecting these issues to the broader social movements of today. In a way, we do a disservice to the work and to the politics of that work when we frame it as climate adaptation or water management. This is just about how power is distributed in society as a whole. Who's left out? How does the color of your skin, how does your gender, how does your sexuality, how does your age affect whether or not you have a seat at the table? We simply need to advocate for more equitable distribution of power across society And then our planning and design processes will become more equitable as well. By the very metrics of the planners and economists and designers and engineers that we're setting, we're generally not doing very well. I promise you, every single resilience plan in this country, every climate adaptation plan will have words about a culture of awareness and learning and environmental literacy. We'll have stuff about community buy-in. We'll talk about systems change. By the year 2040, we will be this. It's stated in the values, it's stated in the projects. And by and large, we're continuing down the same path that we're continuing down. For example, we produce an urban water plan It calls for $6 billion in investments. The city is investing a few hundred million over the last 10 years almost, and in the years ahead, in green infrastructure projects. We do that, so we're going to have a bit more green infrastructure in the city, not even in every neighborhood. We have nonprofits doing a lot of work. But if you step back and say, are we fundamentally safer? Are we fundamentally better off? Is this a fundamentally more equitable, less vulnerable, less brittle system? I think the answer is no. We haven't addressed the deepest, hardest questions about what it means to live in a disappearing delta below sea level. I find myself trying to communicate to planners and engineers, if we don't radically shift how we think about our work, what we're doing is feeding into an industry that generates work for ourselves. You can get a master's degree in resilience. You can go into every planning and engineering firm now and be part of their resilience practice. Part of the reason I'm so cynical about this is because I grew up in an era when people are talking about sustainability. And so you have sustainability consultants, you have rating systems, you have certification systems, but where are we now? We simply created a new industry that never or very rarely asks us to do the much harder work of shifting power. And so resilience 
I fear and climate adaptation falls into that same, it's not a trap. It's, it's, it's sort of how, how the world works, um, is headed in that direction where we're cranking out these products, but they avoid the hard questions. And so it actually provides cover to continue to do things the same way. It's a veneer, it's a gloss. And so what happens is if we are continuing to invest in the same kinds of systems with a few shifts here and there, we're ultimately continuing to place people in harm's way. And I think that's something we need to confront. You said we can't continue to avoid asking ourselves the hard questions. What would you say those hard questions are? The hard questions, I believe, for this region, what does it mean to live in a Delta system where the river wants to change course and is actively seeking to change course? Or the cost of maintaining the systems as is within the levees? What does it mean to have half of a city below sea level, knowing that there are tremendous costs to maintaining that? And how do we deal with the fact that our legal systems, our economic systems, our very understanding of property and land relies on static notions of land and water in the engineering, in the designation of boundaries. And so when we reflect on a delta where Native American settlements shifted with the water, shifted sometimes seasonally, sometimes generationally, depending on where high ground existed, depending on natural resource distribution, if that was a way of living in the Delta that was sustainable for thousands of years, and in post-colonization, when we talk through these issues, pretty much everyone is quick to say, wow, that's not sustainable. <laughs> so if this isn't sustainable, what kinds of work do we actually have to do to imagine any kind of just transition if we're hemmed in by capitalism and static notions of property. So all that is to say, there's much harder work than whether or not we should all have rain gardens or rain barrels or bioswales. There's work around our politics, our philosophies, truly our fundamental relationships to land, to water, and also to power like around decision-making. The thing that excites me is that the work that we have to do in relation to the environment, in relation to water, is the investments that we make there that I believe we should be making in building shared knowledge and building strong shared ethical systems and decision-making systems. That's the work I think we need to do in society, period, in relation to matters of racial justice, in relation to housing, in relation to COVID and the pandemic. How do you grapple with the knowledge that you have? How do you share knowledge about something that affects everyone and affects every part of life? How do you empower a community to make decisions that make sense for them? And how do you address structural inequalities that are already embedded in the system as you imagine possible solutions? When we were starting up Ripple Effect, I think we're thinking about what does water literacy mean? What does it entail? And for me, it's never just been about the science knowledge of water and soils. We talked about it in terms of knowledge, 
creativity and ethics. Knowledge, like we have to share knowledge. If you don't understand how a pump works, then we're not going to make good policy about pumps. The creativity, it's hard to see ourselves out of some of these seemingly intractable issues. So there has to be an insistence on people's imaginations and abilities to, to create new solutions and new frameworks. And then the ethics, it's, it's fundamentally an ethical question of where do you invest resources? Who do you protect first? Who gets to make decisions? And so I, I truly believe like investments in creativity, knowledge, and ethics, like to me, that's fundamental to addressing our water issues. It's not more plans. It's not more engineering. It's to me, it's those three things. If we do that, we make our lives better in so many other aspects of, of life as well. Do you have a utopia vision? Uh, I should say that I was raised Buddhist and I, I don't have a utopia vision. This is where New Orleans and Delta like makes it so clear. There is no good solution. And it's actually really helped me because it's forced me to get much more quickly to the point. My utopia is that we see ourselves in a kind of ecological way where we understand that everything is constantly shifting in policy, in environment, in our own capacities. And what are the inputs that we can do to shape ethical decision-making and looking out for the most vulnerable amongst us and have that simply be a practice that is ongoing. The utopia is a place where every single person feels like they have a right to talk about the future of their community and of the city and the region and understand how to exercise that voice and be a part of decision-making. I don't think we're anywhere close to that, but with a lot of people, I'm trying to build some of those pathways. In a lot of work I see, it's like, oh, we just need to engage people. And like, it just doesn't mean that much if it's not connected to a politics of, okay, now you've learned about this. What do you think should happen? And how are you going to be a part of that? You know, in a lot of ways, you're really reiterating for me, like why I wanted to talk about evictions and housing crisis and subsidence at the same time. Oh, yeah. It started off with this idea of a sinking feeling of losing one's home, mm -hmm. but you're really boiling it back down to this fundamental way in which we address all of our issues, no matter what they may be. Yeah. How do we seek to find solutions? Yeah. How do we work through it with each other? Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah. One thing, if we know that disasters are prime opportunities for certain transitions when people are uprooted, when systems are broken, is when big change happens. How do we acknowledge that, acknowledge that disasters will happen, do everything we can in advance, but also have ideologies that are as ready to go as disaster capitalism? And we see this a lot with mutual aid networks after every storm. But at a political systemic level, what are ways in which we can anticipate and not just talk about mitigation and resilience, but understand that it's hard for somebody who's dealing with day-to-day -day life. Like if you're trying to get your kids to school or you're trying to make dinner, like it's hard in that context to be like, oh crap, now I also got to think about the future of, of my neighborhood. 
and like develop an opinion on it. Are you crazy? But after a storm in the eight days that I was without power after Ida, some of the richest, deepest conversations I've had with neighbors, with friends, with colleagues was in that time because you're just forced to think and reckon with the things that you're able to put away on a day-to-day basis. And so seeing those as moments of opportunity for systemic change, I can beat my head against the wall all day long for the rest of my life and be like, create art features and curriculum and all kinds of stuff, lead tours for the rest of my life. And it wouldn't do as much for building shared knowledge as a single disaster where everyone's forced to deal with how drainage works. And so unfortunately, I think the disasters will be key learning opportunities and a chance for a shift in politics. See, I just, I agree. And I also, the part about that that concerns me is that people with power are always a little bit more insulated from the hardships when disaster strikes. And so while it might be difficult for them to, if you're in a position of power and and you have to run your whole house on a generator, you know, for a week, that that's not ideal. It's certainly in a much better position than somebody who has no power for that entire time. Yeah, definitely. No, yeah, you're right. Um, And those in power will be, if you're not trying to survive, then you can... (laughs) Use it to figure out how to profit or make the change that you've been wanting to change with your staff or whatever. So, yeah. So it's like penetrating to that, to that level. I talked about being raised Buddhist and to me, it's understanding that as difficult as it always is, change is going to happen and we can't take for granted. We've grown up in this era where municipal systems have generally worked. But even just a few generations ago, people were using cisterns or were dealing with different kinds of flooding. And so the things that we take as certainties now, particularly in regards to infrastructure, those will continue to evolve. There is no utopia. It's just a constant grappling with the changing conditions and figuring out our ethics around that. We use this phrase so much in the urban water plan and it's been coming into greater use around the city we say living with water. What does that mean? What does that look like? There's one vision articulated in the urban water plan, but I think there are other ways, just looking at international examples of how that might come to be. And I think that's fundamentally the question. Like in the Delta, you're gonna live with water, whether or not you want to, you're gonna pump it, you're gonna let it sit, you're gonna elevate yourself above it. It's there, period. So what are you gonna do about it? I think something that for me comes true after disasters is the a reintegration of different abilities and ways of being and knowing the world, like they come crashing together. Because when you strip away modern power systems and infrastructure, you're reconnected to fundamentals. New Orleans, of all the cities in the US, I think this is one of the few places I've ever lived where everyone can feel something at the same time. And it's cheesy in that, like on Mardi Gras day, when people are out on the streets, there's an energy to how people move and people's spirits. And it's tied to place, it's tied to everything around you. It's tied to all of your senses. 
and I haven't experienced that anywhere else. So I really believe this is a place where everyone can feel something and work towards something collectively in a deeply visceral way. On Mardi Gras Day, so many of us walk to the river. I'm recording this final tracking for this series on the autumnal equinox. Later today, I will walk to the Mississippi River and I'll think about all that I wish to call in and all that I wish to release. I'll think about how the water has flowed all the way from Lake Itasca down to the Gulf of Mexico, a constant cycle and what my place is in this cycle what our place is in this cycle, and how we can be more compassionate. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human right. Every person that I interviewed has made me think, and I hope that they've made you, as the listeners, think too about the world that we can build together. Thank you so much to Austin Feldbaum, Kate Scott, Aaron Chang, and everyone who contributed their voices to the entirety of this five-part series. Thank you to Shay Shackelford for editorial support. This piece was produced by me, Marie Lovejoy. The music in this episode is by Circus Marcus. You can help us keep creating this kind of content by supporting Antenna's work at antenna.works backslash donate. This podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Division of the Arts, Arts Council New Orleans, the Rosemary Foundation, Morris Ajme Architects, and most importantly, by individuals like you. You can subscribe to support this and all other antenna programming, which includes publications delivered right to your doorstep. Subscribe to hear more at antenna.works backslash subscribe. I'm Marie Lovejoy, and you're listening to the Antenna Signals podcast.